I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere. You know, the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. Just a little bit, we're going to have Angela Jackson Brown, who is one of the authors who will be reading at the Downtown Writers Jam, November 12th, at Indie Reads Books. It's going to be a good time. Make sure you go sign up for that. You can find us at thegeekypress.com backslash events. We have several people coming down from Chicago, from Curbside. Splendor, three or four authors. We have another one coming in from St. Louis, Trey Dowell, who wrote The Protectors. Angela will be there. We have three newbie writers. It's going to be a full night from 6.30 to 8.30. And afterwards, we're heading down to the pub to hang out afterwards. So make sure you RSVP. We have 50 or 60 people so far like to get that number to around 75 or 80, fill the bookstore. If you are around Indianapolis on November 1st, Indie Word Lab is happening. Down at Indie Reads Books, Barb Shoup is reading this month. Barb is the head of the Indiana Writer Center, where I'm on the advisory board. She was also the first guest on our podcast. She's got a new book out called Looking for Jack Kerouac. So you can go see her read. I guess you would go hear her read. 
I am trying to jam in some writing because on in December, I'll be at the Word Lab down at Indy Reads Books. Um, looks like I'll have two pieces. One from the Summer of Run, which is a short that I have and I'll have out soon. Um, another piece from So Far Appalachia, which is the book project that languishes ever in hell staring at me. So it's been an interesting few weeks since we last talked. I just got back from Boston. It's always hard to be in Boston. I used to work at MIT, and uh, it was my dream job working at a technology review, doing some really working with smart people and working with smart writers, um, talking about big subjects and big topics. So it's always fun to revisit, but it's also a little bit difficult to have left that world, although, frankly, um, the media world is a tough one to get over these days, uh, layoffs and all that kind of stuff. But I will say the nice thing about Technology Review is that it is um, a part of MIT, so it's not exactly a standalone business. It has less turnover than um, traditional media companies, and they really do a good job thinking about things in long form. Whether it be the web, whether it be the magazine, whether it be their uh, events. Their events apparently are amazing. I've only been to the one when I was there back in 2004 and 5. Um, but I've heard they got better. So that's always, um, it's fun and it's hard to revisit those things. It is coming up on November, which is every writer's most hated month because that's when they have, uh, that's when there is the national um, writer's book writing month um, where everybody tries to write 50,000 words and everybody who's kind of a writer gets very excited. All of us who are writers get very annoyed because 50,000 words in a month is probably not going to be very good. Maybe it'll be brilliant. The odds are it won't. But I've already had several friends ask me if I'm going to do it. And of course, I haven't written anything. So of course, I'm going to do it because it will be a reason to motivate me into writing. I will say one of the great things about starting the podcast and getting the Geeky Press Collective up and going um, is that I've been reading a ton. And you can find the reviews that we have um, up at the Geeky Press. But even beyond that, like just um, I don't normally read fiction. I'm not a big, huge fiction writer. But many of the people that are involved in the Writer's Jam end up being fiction writers. So uh, I read their books before they come down. I read the excerpts when they send them in. To make sure that they are people that we wanted to jam. And so that's been really, it's been good. I forget sometimes how much I enjoy reading. Uh, and I try, I was reading something the other day, but I think it was on BuzzFeed when they were talking about not doing negative book reviews anymore. Um, which, you know, on the surface feels good. Um, and it's something that I definitely try not to do. When I'm reviewing books, even when I'm reading books, is to not be negative. But there has to be some sense of honesty about it, right? Like one of the things that I liked about working at Technology Review is that we didn't go along with whatever the popular um, ideas were at the time. Like we stepped back and we tried to look empirically at what was happening and figure out um, what truth was. Whatever the truth was as, as far as science and technology told us. And so writing long form about those things was wonderful. It was great. It was a lot of fun. It, it removed some of the bullshit uh, opinion making that we do. Um, but along the way, we were also critical of things. And as I was reading this BuzzFeed thing, 
which isn't particularly new, but thinking about the ways in which uh, I approach reviewing, both on the site, but then I also go out and leave lengthy reviews at Goodreads and Amazon and places where you can buy the books because I feel like as bookstores and go away and as newspapers and magazines spend less time reviewing those kinds of books, that these kinds of collectives that we run at the Geeky Press, this professionalized amateurism, becomes more important. It becomes the place where people can come to find out what is happening and what they should read and what they should pick up. And so there is some sense that I should be honest when I don't like things, um, but not necessarily snarky. And if I really hate a book, I, I probably wouldn't review it, right? Because at the end of the day, obscurity will take care of whether something is worthwhile or not. Um, and, and, and participating at that level of negativity about things doesn't really do any good. Um, unless you're contextualizing something within a larger movement. And ultimately, this is what I think the problem is, is that you can review books in two ways. And one is, um, I think, relatively meaningless and not worth a lot, which is here's what I thought of the book. And we do a little bit of that. I do a little bit of that. It is, you know, nothing particularly interesting um, in terms of helping people contextualize things. But I do try to say, here's what I think the author was trying to do. Here's where um, things went. Um, here's where maybe th there were some struggles that didn't totally make sense. But this is sort of what you can expect if you get the book. So even that, even the way that I reviewed those isn't really whether I like something or not. It really is trying to understand how the author has put something together. And then there are these larger contextual pieces. Um, but for the most part, I think most books don't deserve those kinds of things. Most books, I don't think, rise to the level of historically um, important. And so even ones that might be considered, that number compared to the number that get put out are not that great. So that sort of highbrow criticism of things is, is probably not warranted very often. Um, that snarky kind of. Here's why this does or does not matter. So that it, it's interesting. I, I was being out in Boston and being back in that world and, and hanging out with my friends and people that do those kinds of highbrow things and then returning back to here where I, we do our events and we have the newsletter and we are really trying to build an idea around literature and less um, determining what is or isn't part of the tastemaking. The tastemaking for us is whatever the fuck we think is interesting. Um, and, and that it's an interesting transition to me, both professionally from where I started to where I've come back, but to just the thing that I get up and enjoy. I get up and read daily now um, because there is something exciting about building something around interesting people and small regions and pockets and places where people don't normally get that kind of treatment. It's fun to see how it all breaks out. So even though I haven't been writing, although I have several days blocked off in the member to do that, um, it, it, I've noticed in the last two months that that is starting to shift just thinking about how we do things here at the Geeky Press. And it was very stark coming back from Boston, coming back from that world that I used to live in. But enough about that. Uh, we have Angela coming in. You can see her on November 12th. Make sure to sign up for our newsletter. And now, here's our interview with Angela Jackson Brown.
Okay, so you you teach at Ball State? Yes, I do. So are you tenure track? Are you full time up there? Or you... Contract faculty. Okay, so you have the awful job in academia of contract. You know, really, it's not as bad. Yeah. I mean, it's it's better than adjunct. Yeah. Um, I guess that's true because you you are. But are, are you semester to semester? Or are you? Um, we get a year contract. Uh-huh. Some of us get uh, a couple year contracts if we've been there for a while. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's really not so bad. Yeah. And I get the same benefits that tenure track get. Yeah. I just don't have to worry about the publishing part yeah. of it as much. That big pile over there is my getting ready to do tenure thing. Just a stupid folder of. It's, oh, wow. It's awful. It is awful. It's completely dumb. <laughs> the thing I hate about academia the most is that. Exactly. <laughs> so where did you get your – you got an MFA or a PhD? I have an MFA. Where did you get that at? Spalding University. Oh, yeah. in Ohio? No, 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 in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. So it's the Spalding MFA Low Residency Program. Oh, Low Residency. That's the yeah. way to do that, right? It, it, well, if you're working, yeah. if you're a mom or a wife, it is really. It yeah. was the perfect thing for me. Uh, and I'm a pretty disciplined person, uh-huh. so I didn't necessarily have to have the classroom everyday thing. Yeah. So. Plus, if it's writing, at a certain point, you just have to, you have to have something to bring into workshop. Otherwise, like, ha- meeting every week isn't necessarily really that beneficial. No, not no. And I like the fact that I mean, it was twice a year for ten days. Mm-hmm. So it's like Goucher. Right. Goucher has the same kind of program. I think. Exactly. And so for those ten days, you know, you just get. It's almost just overload with all of the information. And then you get that time to kind of decompress when you go back home and just yeah. kind of move from there with the writing. So for me, it was the perfect perfect way to do an MFA. And there's such a nurturing environment yeah. at, at Spalding. So I, I, I had great experience. Yeah, you know, and that's always the big um, you know, it's the big debate right now. It's like, not now, like always, do you get an MFA or not? And it's like, right. the, I mean, people are split down the middle. So where where, where, you, where were you born? Where are you from? I was born in a little town. Ta- well, I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, but I was raised in a little town called Ayrton, Alabama. Okay. It's probably about two hours um, uh, north of Panama City Beach. So okay. it was uh, great to be able to be that close to the water. <laughs> yeah. Were you, uh, did you always write? Like, were you? Oh, like, Yeah. That kid that wrote knows in a book. And yes, I was that kid. I was that kid that read. I was that kid that would write. I mean, I would, uh, even before I really understood what writing was, I would take my books and, and deconstruct them, I guess, was what I was doing and turn them into my own individual stories. So, yeah. Do you have any of that stuff? Did you keep it? I, well, I didn't, but my mother, she's a pack rat, so she has all of these little scribblings that I that um, that I did as a child in my cat in the hat books and all those. So ones. you were doing it from oh from like uh, day one from day one really from day one. What so one of the things that I did um, growing up was I have everything I've ever written filed by year, and I was doing this as I was like at the time. And then writing introductions to grad students who might be reading my stuff, like wow. thirty years from now, because wow. I didn't want them to, um, you know how sometimes people deconstruct stuff and they're like, well, the author meant this, and as an author, you're like, that's that's not what that's I meant. Not at all right. what I, meant. I was convinced that in eighth <laughs> grade that like my stuff was going to be misinterpreted. <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's a certain level of narcissism, but also like I just. I loved writing so much. Yeah. I wish that I had kept more. Now, as I got older, I became very um, critical of my work. So I had lots of 
behind the house burnings of work. Really? Yeah, and I regret that because, I, you know, I, I, there's this big gap. There's a time when I was little where there's just boxes of all this stuff that I did when I was little, and then there's this big gap from about 10 to about 18 where there's just, you know, random pieces. Some of them I'm wondering, why the heck did I keep those and burn the others? But for whatever reason, yeah. I made the decision to, you know, that I, I didn't want to have something out there potentially representing me that I didn't feel confident about. Were you, now, are you close with your parents? Like, Well, it's a weird thing. I, I'm adopted, okay. so I'm close with two sets of family. I, I'm a, I have, you know, my birth family that I was uh, reconnected with in my 30s. And then my adopted family that I'm still very close yeah. with. So. so it wasn't like you had angsty emo 10 through 18 where you were writing, like, the dark poet. Like, that wasn't why you burnt it. Some of it. Yeah. Yeah, some of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, some of it was dark. Some of it was. Like and we'll, a typical teenage. That and other things. And I think when we talk about the book yeah. more, it'll kind of. We can right now. It, yeah, it'll kind of make sense. Um, I'm very open about the fact that I was. Um, uh, abused by a family member at a very young age. And a lot of the poetry that I wrote during that time was angry poetry like about yeah, working through that. Was it a, it wasn't, a, it was it a, wasn't a direct, it's like a family member, extended family member? Extended family, yeah, uh, married into the family. Yeah, okay. So it was, uh, and so in the novel, uh, I always knew that I did not want to write uh, a memoir or anything like that. That was just too close to the truth of what <laughs> happened. So I knew with the fiction, it gave me the flexibility to tell my story, but yeah. I could create the ending that I wanted. You I wrote a memoir t- just in fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. You know, I added characters, t- sure. t- took away characters, you know, made the story the way probably if I could have lived it that way, yeah. that would have been the way, the way I did in the book. This is a theme that has already emerged in the in, in the podcast. So David Foster Wallace said sort of famously that the more you write, the more you realize fiction and nonfiction are the same. Thing, yes. Right? Because your perception of things, and I came from journalism, right? I was a, I still am a nonfiction writer. Um, but I always tell my students, your eyes are the things that tell you the least about what's happening. Yes. Exactly. Do any cognitive science research, you talk to any cop, they'll tell you what you see is never what happened. Right. But I'm an addict. I'm a recovering addict. And I've had this problem since the time for a long time. It's not new. It didn't come up. And so I gravitated to reality because mm. my life was built so much around fiction. Yes. And I'm always fascinated when I talk to fiction people because they have stories like what you just said, which was my reality was not a thing that I wanted to spend a whole lot of time in. Not that you ran away from it, but that you wanted to write a different ending. Exactly. That. Do you think that's why you ended up in fiction? Like, do you write nonfiction? Is that a thing you do at all? Um, I mean, I blog. That's about the. That's about as close as I get to yeah. it because you know those are just snippets. Yeah. And, and, it, and I don't have to stay in that world long. Mm-hmm. So I have written about the abuse. I've written yeah. about other things that I that I've dealt with in my life. But again, it's snippets, and I can um, I can quickly put it out there, mm-hmm. and I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. With the fiction, of course, or even if you're writing memoir, you, you're with that for a minute. Yeah. And that can become. I mean, that can sink you back into some dark places right? just writing it. <laughs> yeah. And I felt that way with this novel at times when I was writing specifically the chapters that dealt with the abuse that she was experiencing. 
there were times when I just, I had to go turn on a funny movie or right. watch, you know, Cartoon Network or Disney Channel yeah. for a while to get out of that space because yeah. it's a, it's, it, it can, it can suck you in. And I wrote this in first person. So that makes it even it really more. It is a memoir. It drives it. it yeah, yeah. It drives it home even more because you're in the voice of this character yeah. all the time. And, and it's just, it, it's, but, but I, but I'm glad I wrote it, but I, I don't want to be in that dark space anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I, the next novel is totally different. Yeah. So yeah. you already started thinking about what that's going to be. Oh no, I'm, I'm almost done with it. Okay. Yeah. So like you got done with this and immediately. We're like, I need something better. Exactly. Or nicer. Something exactly. Like, exactly. That's funny because with the nonfiction stuff, I find myself, um, I swirl around the same sort of genetic themes in my writing. And anytime mm-hmm. I try to get outside of them, I just get pulled back. Like, I'm just not interested in anything other than um, sort of deconstructing the thing that uh, made my the, the life. Because I don't, my childhood was great. My family's great. They're the best people ever. Like, nothing bad ever happened to me other than what I did to myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so exploring those themes and, like, trying to figure out where those manifest with other people, right, and why they happen. Um, but, again, I talk to fiction writers who say, nope, I've sort of yeah. dealt with that, and now it's time to deal with another part of my psyche, whatever, yeah. whatever that is. Or a thing that I don't even know, and I want to go learn about that and experience it. Yeah, and I think I have that kind of Gemini mind too. Mm-hmm. Of, of you know, I I don't like I like change. Yeah. Um, I told my husband I you know my parents my my adopted parents they lived in the same house over you know sixty something years they mm-hmm. still have the same telephone number that they've <laughs> always had. Right. Me, I mean, after about six years, I'm about ready to move. Yeah. You know, let's pick it, pick up stakes, go somewhere else. My yeah. son says, you know, I will never know where to find you if I were to go missing for like six years I wouldn't even know where to start because you you just you know you'll just appear somewhere else because and so I like that in my writing I like change maybe that's why I I mess around with all the different genres Uh like playwriting and poetry and and fiction I just I like change yeah do you think that that stems from the that the abuse that from that time Mm -hmm. like do you think that that is a thing that you don't want to feel trapped in a space Wow, look at you. Wow. And I don't even have to give you a co-payment for this. No, this no, is no. like no. psychoanalyst without the co-payment. Yeah. I love it. It could be. Yeah. It could be because I, I, I am very much a control um, con- control kind of girl. So maybe it does stem from that to yeah. a degree where I want to find control in other areas where in that part of my life I didn't have it. So that i I buy that. Yeah. I mean, it's particularly since I, I just thought it was interesting that you wanted to, and I've heard it, like I said, fiction, I wanted to write a different end to the story, right? right. Like, I can't control this, so I'm going to, and mine is the opposite, which is my fiction sort of spun out all over the place, so I want to know what truth means. Wow. You know, even like little T, like, no, there's not a truth. There right. are truths that happen. Right. Um, and I, just, I find it, trying to understand why writers write, Mm-hmm. You know, like I always have. It's just always been the way I work things out. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like that is a that literature is a way that you work things out to, or experience the world. Yeah. And it's also just it's almost like a hunger. You know, I can go periods of time where I don't write, but then there becomes this almost uh, hunger is the best word I can come up with where. 
it's I have to do it. Yeah. I, I, it's this, and I tell my students that if you're writing because you want to be the next whomever, yeah. you're you're doing it for all the wrong yeah. reasons because none of none of the people that I know who write are rich. Right. All of them are teaching or they're working as right. cab drivers or they're waitresses. They're, they they are doing something else to feed you know, to feed them so that they can keep this writing habit going. Yeah. But it's got to be generated from just a, a hunger to do it, that you can't not write. Yeah. So. How much do you, so, okay, so you're, you're 18. Where'd you go to high school at? Um, Ayrton High School in Ayrton, Alabama. And what did you do? Like, were you part of clubs? Were you, like, Miss Social? Oh, I, you know what? We were such a small class. Uh, I said we were almost like the one-room schoolhouse. We yeah. were, there were 22, I think, 22 people in my graduating class. Um, 21 of us got scholarships to go to college. We were a, a nerdly group. Yeah. That's uh, awful for the 22nd person. <laughs> and, I, and I think that was by choice. I don't even think, I think the 22nd person just didn't want to go. Yeah. So I don't think it was that we're that person. That yeah, that's what we're going to say. And I don't even know who that 22nd person was at this point. But, but we, but, but I was, um, I tried sports for a minute, but it just wasn't me. So I, I was on the yearbook staff. I was yearbook editor, um, work, wrote for the school newspaper. So, you know, all the nerdly kind of yeah. things I did. But like for like I said, with my class, we were just a, a group of nerds. So it was acceptable. We yeah. we were the cool kids and the nerds all at well, the same time. Well, you were 22. Like, you yeah. were everything. Like, yeah, we were was, everything. Yeah. You know, there, were, there, were, there was not enough of us to segregate ourselves right. into little, you know, cliques. Right. We were just one huge nerdly clique. Where, and where did you go to college at? Uh, I... I received my bachelor's degree from Troy University in Troy, Alabama. Okay. And then I um, I went for my master's in English from Auburn University. Okay. So you got you got a, and uh, what was that in? A master's in English. In English. And then you went and got an MFA. And then many, many years later, I got the MFA. So, um, so you go to Troy. Yes. What was that like? Coming out of a class of twenty-two. Oh my goodness! I, you know, Troy is not a it's not a large college. It's right? not a Division huge, three? but it, yeah, something yeah. like that. It was not huge, but it was huge for someone right. like me. It was still times fifty. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I felt very much like um, uh, I, I don't know. I just felt I, it, it took took me some time to get used to what college life was like. But I was so prepared. That was the other thing about it. Yeah. We had some great teachers. We didn't have the, the greatest technology. We didn't sure. have, you know, we didn't have the advanced placement classes. But we had teachers who were so committed to making sure that in spite of the fact that we were a little country school, yeah. that all of the kids were going to be prepared. So when I got to college, you know, I was expecting something much more scary than what I actually, um, you know, what I actually found. Yeah. I was very much prepared for all of the classes that I took. So. And did you continue the nerdy writing newspaper, or did you? No, <laughs> I was. Um, See I, what else that was out there. I, I I got married at the age of twenty. Really. And um, two years later, I had a son. So I was going to school, working, and being a mom and a wife at that time. So I didn't get to do college the way a lot of a lot of girls, you know, and guys did college. So were you? So you weren't. So what were you? What was? 
what did you think you were going to do for work after? At that point, were you going to be a stay-at-home mom? No, no, no. You that was really never. Like no, 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 no. Not no. that you could be, but like you just don't seem to have that. Like, oh yeah, I'll just stay home. That's fine. No, <laughs> no. I am. I love my son to death, but I am not the nurturing, yeah. typical kind of. You know, you know, mom. I, yeah. I. In our household, we think that's good. Yeah. Well, they should be part of the family, not the center. Of the there you go. Well, <laughs> I hope he thinks that's a good thing, and I hope from it he learned the discipline uh, to that you know to be a good college student as well. I mean, because he spent most of his life in a college class, <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> and so I worked. Um, I worked as a secretary while I went to school uh, in in the social work department, and my boss at the time was very adamant that I needed to be more than a secretary. Mm-hmm. Not, And this is no, no, throwing yeah. no shade to any secretaries out there, but he said, you can do more. Yeah. You know, you have the ability. Don't settle. And so um, I was able to get a scholarship to Auburn University. Um, Troy University paid for me to go. Uh, with the intention of me to come back and teach. So you got you were a, a, a secretary at Troy University, mm-hmm. and then they they helped you. Get they a, helped me get. Um, they paid for my way, and then when I got to Auburn, I received fellowships there. I said I, the best paid the be, the time in my life when I was the best paid was when I was getting my master's because I was getting all this money from yeah. all these different places. I ended up not owing anyone at the end of my master's degree, which is almost unheard of as yeah. we know these days. So it was, um, and so after that, I went back and I taught for three years English. at Troy English. And did you have designs? Did you think because this is your first book, right? Drinking this is my first book. Yes. So how long ago was that, roughly? Oh, this came out this year. No, no, no. What oh. were you teaching? Oh, I was teaching in the nineties. So it's been a while. It's been a minute. Yes, definitely. So you go back, you teach for three years, and I'm assuming mm-hmm. when you're at Auburn, still married, raising the kid, like doing graduate school differently than most people. Well, the story took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the my 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 husband at the time we divorced. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, I just, my son and I lived on our own for a period of time and I taught. While you're in graduate school? Oh, uh, no. A- after okay, I went back after. to Troy. Yeah, after I returned to Troy, um, it, things just didn't work out. Yeah. So I, I, I taught and, and then after, uh, after the divorce, um, I made some life decisions that for my son and I, that we just, we need to change. That's when, yeah. that's when the, it's time for us to get on the road yeah, yeah. kind of attitude came about. And we we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. It's a great town, isn't it? Oh my gosh, I love Louisville. It's, it's like an undiscovered little gem that people don't know about. Uh, it is the one place on the planet that if I if someone said, okay, you can't wander around the planet anymore, yeah. you have to settle somewhere. Louisville would be it. It's amazing. There's so much to do, like the little art culture oh and the gosh. river boats and. Uh, Toast on Market, I think, is like my favorite restaurant in the yes. whole world. <laughs> so yes, Forest Street Live yeah. is just it's a phenomenal. And no matter what age you are, you can find things right? to do. Yeah, yeah. And so Louisville was a great place for my son and I. So you moved, but not to get the MFA there. Not to get the MFA, but I did get the husband. I got the second, the husband, second husband, the best husband, yeah. the husband, the winner, the winner, yeah. the keeper. And so. Um, as you know, I, I, I was still writing some, but not seriously. I mean, I wasn't sending anything out. Yeah. It was more so just for my own pleasure. Uh, but then fast forward, uh, 
towards my my sons, my stepson and my son graduating from high school and me making the decision that, okay, I need to figure out what I want to do so for the rest of my happened. life. Yeah. Like once the, yeah, the next that, was upon That and 40 approaching. Yeah. Approaching 40. Because it's like, okay, well, if you're going to do this, yeah. you, you might better figure it out. I mean, I'm assuming I'm going to be another 50, 60 years, but... <laughs> Assuming I, but in case I'm, I don't, I wanted to know that I had done all that I could do to pursue my passion. Yeah. And I knew writing was it. So I um, just off the street went into the, the Spalding University um, offices and talked to the people there and said, look, I'm thinking about doing this. And they were like, you need to do this. You need to do this. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll try for next year. And they're like, no, we've got openings for this semester, and we can get you a scholarship, and you need to do this. And, and her name was Karen Mann, and I was thinking, there's no way. She's pushing me too fast. I don't think this is what I really want to do right now, but it was the even best thing. You, even though you walked in and said, I want to do it. I, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but you, not now. <laughs> exactly. It was, you know, let's talk. Could we talk about right. this for maybe, you know, two years right. from now or something? But she was very adamant that I needed to do this. And so <laughs> we put my application on the fast track. Yeah. And within maybe two weeks, I was, you know, in sure. school. So it was it was the best thing she ever did because had I waited, I would have found all the excuses in the world yeah. not to do it. So do you start working on this book? I'd already started doing some some work on the book, but it wasn't anywhere close to where it is sure. now or after working with my mentors at Spalding. So you spent time at Spalding working on what would become Drinking from a Bitter Cup? Most definitely. I spent the first two semesters there working on, on this novel yeah. and fine-tuning it and then then putting it away. I didn't touch it again until after graduation. Really? I started working on a, a collection of short stories. Why'd you, wait, well, I want, why did you put it away and not touch it for a year? That's crazy. It, well, on one level it sounds crazy, yeah. but I think... You just th need to be away from it? I think, well, because it needed a final read through okay. and I think if if I tell my students maybe not a year but you need to be able to put your work aside for enough time that you can sure. not be so emotionally right. attached to every word I think it's amazing exactly yeah. where you read every sentence and you think of how hard you worked to put that sentence together so if you can have that distance yeah then you can lose some of that emotional connection and you can really where I was able to almost just almost like taking a paring knife and yeah. just pare away the stuff that was just not yeah. not good. That was there for you and not for the story. Exactly. Yeah. And I never and on the other trick I tell them to make themselves feel better is don't delete delete. Just I have a, a file that I call the slush file and I put all of my lovely bits of prose and poetry in there that I know I can't use right, right now but maybe I'll go back and recycle it later. Yeah. Which Mine is at the bottom of mine and it's the uh, to be not used. <laughs> I can't delete even the precious stuff if even if not going in. I know. To be not used. Yes. <laughs> so, so you said it aside but it wasn't like an emotional like this was too much, no. and you needed time. It was just the writing, like no, I, I, I need fresh eyeballs. Exactly. Um, so you finished. So when did you finish? When did you graduate? I graduated in two thousand nine. And 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 so and when did the book? You pulled the book back out then. Uh, pr 
pretty soon thereafter, I started sending it out to agents. Once, once I, you know, gone through it a, a couple more times, did the little, you know, by that time it was more grammatical stuff. Yeah. So when you when you're at the point where you're looking at comma splices, you know, okay, well I'm I'm about there. Yeah. You know, I could keep dusting this thing off for forever. So that's when I started doing my research for a publisher. Uh-huh. And um, I started out looking for an agent, but then I thought, you know, I'll, I'll try to publish the smaller publishing houses as yeah. well. You know, I won't discount them. And I think, too, it gives it sometimes gives you, uh, if you're a first-time author, I think sometimes going with a smaller publisher, it may not give you the the fanfare, you may not get the write-up in the New York Times or something, but you will often get that individual nurturing yeah. kind of experience that you may not get with one of the big five publishers. Yeah. Well, it, so part of the reason that I started the Geeky Press, little writing collective, it's pe- writers of my friends from around, and then students and young writers that I work with, is because I have this belief that the way you used to do things, where you get a three-book deal, right? And they nurture you through the first two that are not going to sell a lot. Right. With the idea that by book three, if you're still not selling, then we let you go. But hopefully you've built an audience. That's kind of expected. You're kind of Out expected to bring your own people now. Oh, yeah. And so working with small presses and doing all this kind of stuff is I, I told people, this is the new bookstore, right? Like, right. this is the place to gather these collectives together to let people know, like, here's where the stuff is happening. Exactly. And, and we're very happy that John Green is the, what, 15-year overnight success, mm-hmm. and you all yeah. know him. But everybody else is still sort of in that early part of their career, building the audience. And it's hard to find that. Yeah. Um, there's just not those kinds of communities, I think, that exist that much anymore. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, along those lines, you know, I grew up in the rural South where a handshake meant something, where my dad could go to the neighborhood grocery store and say, can I get this on credit till Friday? Right. You know, whereas now go to Walmart or go to Target and see if you can make that happen and come back and tell me about it. So I like the concept of knowing everyone in the publishing house by name. Yeah. You know, that there's so few people that I can individually not only tell you things about or know their names, but tell you things about them. Right. Like, you know, you their know. birthdays and their it, kids. It, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, knowing things about the editor that I worked with and yeah. knowing that she's a writer, too, and that she just had a few, you know, new books come out. You know, those kind of things were important to me initially. Now, would I would I be lying if I said that it wouldn't who wouldn't I mean who wouldn't love to go to right. one of the big publishing houses? But if I stayed with a small press for the rest of my publishing career, I wouldn't be sad by, saddened yeah. by that. And and you know it's because I was one of those people many years ago, and my one of my first professors loves to continually tell me this. I told her like I want to be famous. I want to be a famous writer, and that was the trajectory I went on. Like when I was at Berkeley, um, I was Michael Lewis's TA when he was working on the new or the blind side and all that stuff. And Tom yeah. Wolf was his, like, so I was sort of going that way. And then the addiction kicked in and all kinds of fun stuff happened. And I have told people, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause I'm from Appalachia. I'm from a little small, you know, we're not yeah. from big places. And I was totally ill prepared as a human being to handle any kind of actual success. 
And so coming back and, and, and sort of starting over and, and working in small places, I just find so much more, it's fun. Right. Like, I love it. Right. Um, even when I see things that are kind of disastrous, mm. it's, that's okay. Like, art to me should be dirty. Yeah. I don't like the pristine, like Marvel's great. I love seeing those movies, billion dollar movie. But I also like seeing something where you're reading it and you can kind of feel the flaws and see what the author's trying to work out. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I'm, I try to explore those things in my writing as well. Um, when I, it, it's great getting the reviews, you know, from, from readers, but you have to be careful. You, you have to be careful not to internalize some of the things because <laughs> it's easy to read in the, Oh my God, I wish I'd done this and done this right. because um, I finally reached the point in my, in, in, in dealing with those reviews to say, look, the book is what the book is. Yeah. And I, I appreciate everyone's opinion, but I can't go back and, well, I could, I suppose, if right. I, you know, rewrite it, but I'm not. Right. It is what it is. But I like stories. I've always liked stories where it mimic life. And to me, life is always a, a, a series of, of, of ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. ups and downs. And there's never a, at least in my life, I've not had a happily ever after. Right consistent moment maybe itty bitty moments but not a constant state of being happily ever after so I never wanted to write that type of book I always wanted to leave the reader wondering what's going to happen next so that has been the critique of the novel as well as for some a reason to celebrate to say I'm glad you didn't write the book where you made everything tidy and neat at the end how much? So this is another theme because I I'm a snob. Like I I don't actually care what people think about my book. I'm always mm-hmm. interested in what they say. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how they internalize the things that I write. Mm-hmm. But there's very there's only a few people that I really and and they're writers. And I'm interested in how they do they see the tricks, right? Do they see like yeah. did I do the tricks well? Yeah. Um, do you have do you have like a writers group or do you have like the the people who oh, yeah. you go to and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there's a group at, in Louisville that, that we meet to, uh, once a month and, and share work with each other. And I do seriously take what they have to say. I mean, I take what they have to say seriously. Yeah. Because they, many of them, gradu- some of them graduated with me from Spalding. Others uh, we met just, you know, by accident. Um, and I, I'm kind of like with you. I, I, the random person on the street, I do care what they have to say about the book, obviously. But there are, there's just a, such a small number. I mean, if by some chance Toni Morrison read my book and said she hated it, that would crush me right. for, a, for a long, long yeah. time. But for anyone else... But that's more of the mythology, right? Like, that's yeah. the mythology of Toni Morrison. Yeah, not yeah. Like, at yeah. some point, I bet you'd be like, ah, you know what? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I cared about her. <laughs> I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But 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 yeah, I could see at some point even that being yeah. okay. Well, then thank you, Tony. I, yeah. I'm glad you. Thanks you, for reading. Yes, thank you for reading, it, and I hope you get the next one. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of the. Um, in fact, that was part of the introduction today. Was that uh, I was reading about you know the BuzzFeed books people don't publish negative reviews anymore. Like that was they just said we're not we don't like it. We're not going to write about it. Oh. And so, 
And that's sort of the way I take, like when I review books on the site and I go and I always post in Goodreads and Amazon, I'm always, uh, I try to write about what I think the writer was trying to do, not what I thought about the book. Right? Like what I think about the book is irrelevant. What I try to say is this seems to be where the writer was trying to go. And if you like that kind of thing, mm-hmm. go do that. And I've been wondering about whether that is actually a good thing or not, right? Because mm. if it's not, there's some things that I read and I'm like, holy shit, don't, this is terrible. Yeah. But I just don't have it in me to, like, put that, I just would rather let it ob- sit in obscurity than to spend a lot of time writing about right. why you shouldn't read a thing. Because there's so many things you should read. Right. I don't know where I come, like, I go back and forth on whether that's a good thing. Like, when you think about literature and the ways in which we critique and and, because we don't care right we don't care about what people in the street think but like where do you fall on the review yeah i see what you're saying (laughs) i mean when i'm talking with my students and when we're reading different pieces of literature because i give them things to read that i think are this is superior or this is something that you can still learn from but let's look and see what is it that we think doesn't work and why didn't it work Mm -hmm. so i'm more interested in you know, trying to learn from a text when I'm teaching it. But for my own private reading, I will have to say I do appreciate those reviews that just come right out and say, basically, this is not worth your time. Yeah. And maybe it's because I'm getting older and I realize that my bookshelf is growing and growing. and I don't have room on there for junk. So yeah. it's, I, I've got to be able to somehow figure out what's worth my energy and what's not. So it does in some ways. I think it's beneficial to be able to see to see someone who you respect yeah. say, for these reasons, I don't know that this is a great book. Yeah. Because I think it's like with anything else, it's almost like we've, we've become so careful about not wanting to hurt pe- feelings and not yeah. wanting to say negative things that we've almost veered to the other side. Because if you look at some of those critics from back in the day. Right. I mean, they went in. The le- the letters between people were, I mean, shit, in the, uh, uh, Gladwell and, um, is it Thomas Pinkert? There's a cognitive psychologist that every time Malcolm Gladwell writes in the New York Times book review, he writes a piece about why Gladwell doesn't know anything about what he's writing about. And they're just brilliant back and forth. Yeah. Um, but these are experts in the field talking this about the true. expertise of what they do. Um, like, I, but I read, like, sometimes on Amazon, I just read people that, that are like, oh, this is a piece of shit, or I hate this, or whatever. And I think. I try to figure out who the audience is and what the author was trying to get to instead of saying, I hate this book. I may hate the book, but say, if you're this kind of person, this may be a kind of book that you like. Right. And I'm pretty good about only focusing on the types of books, uh, critiquing the type of books that interest me. Like, I've had to get rid of a lot of my snobbery by teaching creative writing because, you know, I, I know some creative writing teachers will say to their students, you can only only write literary fiction. Yeah. Well, you know, that's my thing, but I have students that love to write, you know, speculative fiction, yeah. or they like to write, you know, historical fiction, or they like to write about vampires and, and, and so forth. So I can, tell I know, but yeah. you know what? My thing is this, and what I say to them, if you're going to write a vampire story, or if you're going to write a story about, you know, um, the next wizard, 
then you better elevate it beyond what's already right. out there. And if right. you can't do that, then no, you right. can't go down that road. Right. So I would like to believe that at the end of the day that I'm helping them to become better crafts people at, right. whatever at whatever genre they they're interested in. Okay. So if you want to write the next love story, then tell me something, show me something that hasn't already been yeah. been done. So who, who, like, who do you read? Who's your books? What, who are the people? Who are the authors that still um, live in your head? Well, I said, Tony Morrison. I mentioned yeah. Toni Morrison, of course. Um, uh, Everything? What's the oh, book? What's yeah. the book? The Bluest Eye is probably my, my favorite yeah. book by her. Is Beloved. The- I love Beloved. That's that's one I go back to often. I, any, pretty much any of her books that have been banned are, are yeah. some of my favorite books. Um, Which one did you read first? I think Beloved was probably yeah. the first Toni Morrison book that. And I then was your favorite one the second one? Yeah, yeah. I find that people's favorite book is the second one. Yeah. And that is just my, like you read an author and you're like, oh, I love them, and you're so geeked that whatever you read next becomes your favorite book by that author. This yeah. is my informal scientific study. <laughs> and and I will say though, now I have gotten kind of caught up in science fiction. Tanana Reeve Do, mm-hmm. if you've never read anything by her, she is amazing. Yeah. And she and her husband, Stephen Barnes, who did several episodes, I believe, of of Star Trek. Uh, yeah, Star Trek. The original? Yeah, the next, I next think it was generation. The Next Generation was the, that, that he wrote for. I think, I might be misspeaking, yeah. but either, either way. The Nation they, of Nerds will correct you. Yes, they will correct <laughs> me. But they he don't has, get that figured out. He's, he, they, they, the two of them together have written some amazing work, and, and she's did, she did a series on, um, uh, on these, um, on these, these, um, these people that, that live forever, the Immortal series, uh-huh, uh-huh. and, I, I never thought I would be interested in that type of writing, but she, but she but she did like what I said. I'd say to my students, if you're going to write in a genre yeah. that's been done forever, take it to the next level. And she, did it well. and she takes she and both she and her husband take it to the next level. Have you read Isaac Asimov? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. The foundation is the you've got to read iRobot. That my yeah. students, even students that don't like or don't think they like science fiction, yeah. they read that and they're blown away. The foundation books are the best books that I've ever read in my whole life. I mm-hmm. read those. I don't know if you've read any of the Foundation series, but mm-hmm. it is, it's just so good. And then yeah. his, I make, um, I make all my students read his essay, The Relativity of Wrong. Yes. Which is just the greatest, like, how do you spell salt? M-A-C-L. Like, yeah. right. Like, we yeah. you should get full credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> Tim O'Brien. I'm a big Tim O'Brien fan. Going after Cacciato, that? Um, the Things They Carry, one of my favorites. Oh. The Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he writes. Uh, he also wrote Going After Cacciato. Yeah. That was my freshman year book at Miami University. Yeah, and I tell, and that's a, he's another one I tell students, if you're going to write about war, if you've not read Tim O'Brien and yeah. you can't go beyond what he has done, particularly if you want to write about the Vietnam War, yeah. then, you know, pick something else. Because that's not your calling. I think you're the fourth person in this series to say Tim O'Brien. Oh, he's he's a master. It's I mean, funny because I did not like going after Cacciato. Oh, I don't I don't know why. Maybe because they made me read it when I was 18. Yeah. So I have to go back and give him a try because people keep telling me he's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then my goddess of all goddesses, Alice Walker. Uh-huh. I, yeah. Yeah. I love her. So those are the books. Those are the ones that you, when you were like younger and read, you thought. Oh. And reread. Yeah. That's my measuring stick. Yeah. If I, if I read it and I'm done with it after the first pass, then, then you're okay. Yeah. But I, but you're not, you're not 
the goddess or god in my right. head. You're not on Mount Rushmore. Exactly. <laughs> and those, she's definitely there. Yeah. Is there anybody that you have picked up recently that you're like, oh, shit, that's pretty good. I wasn't expecting that. Hmm. Have you been focused on writing? So much of my time has been spent on my writing and my yeah. students' writing. So I'm, I'm painfully. None of the students are <laughs> blowing you away as the next. Well, there, you know what? I have some good students. I can't say that. I have some that have written things that have made me think, wow, you really need to be pursuing this. Yeah. You really need to, to pursue this. Fail uh, them. There's not enough space left. We can't have them out competing. <laughs> no, I think there's room on the bookshelves yeah. for, for for all of us. And I think if you write good stuff, people are going to find you eventually. Yeah. You know, that's, at least I have to believe that. So is there – so, okay, so it, it, you in 2009, that was when you graduated Troy. Mm-hmm. So you came up here. You came up to Indianapolis. My husband was um, – his job moved us here. Yeah. And then I got the teaching job at – Ball State, and I'd actually been working in marketing and PR for pretty good time while I lived in Louisville. So uh, I kind of left teaching and then found it again. Which one do you like better, marketing, teaching. PR, teaching? teaching. Yeah. yeah, not even a question. Not even a question. That's not even funny. a question. Because I tell people all the time how much I like. I taught. Middle school was my favorite. I taught kids that were going to be thrown out of um, school because their test scores were too bad. I was trained as a reading teacher. Mm-hmm. Eighth grade was my favorite. Everything wow. beyond that is just like a series of disappointments because mm-hmm. you have greater expectations for what they should do. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, you know, when I have seniors and they're like, I don't really know. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I've known I always wanted to be a writer. There's never been a moment where I didn't yeah. know. And there was no plan B. There was no backup. There was yeah. no... Um, and it drives me crazy when I get like their first draft that they wrote the night before and they're like, well, this is perfect. But you know what? I see it as a challenge <laughs> yeah. for me. And maybe that's the, again, the Gemini thing coming out is I like the notion that I might get a student at the beginning of the semester yeah. who says I'm a science major. I'm a math major. I don't ever think writing will be important. These words me. are silly. Yeah, but to take that student yeah. and then by the end of the semester at least have that student say, you know what, I think I like writing okay. I yeah. mean, it might, I might maybe that student won't want to change majors or maybe that student will, but I like the challenge of taking a student who feels like I felt about math. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And to do for me what my math teacher who – came to my book signing in uh, in my in my uh, in my little small town of Ayrton, Miss Paramore, who's now in her nineties. And this woman made math I won't say fun, but she definitely made it something that didn't intimidate me. Yeah, yeah. And if I can do that for a student that really, you know, could care less about reading or writing, then you know that I, I, that's my Miss Paramore moment. Yeah. It's, I had a, one of my former, I just saw one of my former students, she is at MIT now, and uh, I was in Boston this weekend, and so we, we hung out, and she sent me a note today, they had a, a symposium with um, somebody from Google, from the Creative Labs department, and he gave a talk, and he said, writers make your project team better, because mm-hmm. they're able to understand things that you don't think about. They are empathetic. They understand the world. They look at the world differently. They know how to construct stories. They're not just thinking about a thing. They're right. thinking about, and this is what I try to tell my student writers, is that you may not end up working at a magazine. You may not write books, but the, the world of stories you're going to find 
It's right. a skill that is needed. It never shows up in a job listing, but everybody's very happy when you arrive. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, and when it's you, like the invisible skill. Oh, it is. <laughs> And if we really do, and if we approach writing in the way that, you know, that I try to approach writing, we, we utilize so much of what we learn in other disciplines. Like, I'm so grateful I took all of those psychology classes back in undergrad that I rebelled against because it helps me to think about my characters, what right. motivates my characters to do and say the things that they do. But then when I worked in marketing and PR, it was, you know, what does the public need to hear or to see in order to support yeah. these causes that I was, you know, trying to yeah. support. So you, it, like you say, it all filters in, if you think about it in one way or another, writing is the key to it all. Yeah. You know, it, it, well, it's, it's why we, start, I mean, where did we start out? Like it, it, you moving, like I am fascinated by people. And by what makes them do this, why I like writing, because mm-hmm. all that is, is deconstructing people, mm-hmm. but not for my own. I mean, I tell my students, you got to be, I tell everybody, you have to be very careful because people aren't characters. Yeah. Like they're not, they're people and they have yeah. motivations that go deeper than whatever your pop easy, the basic psychology is. Yeah. And if you can get to that, that's yeah. universal truth because everybody understands yeah. the conflicting depth of emotion. Exactly. And everybody hates good guy, bad guy, right? Yeah. Like you see that story and you're like, ah, I wish that it was more complicated. Right. I've never heard anybody say, I wish that story really had fewer layers to it. There you go. <laughs> and that, and, and, and on those, those, those lines, it's, it's the thing that I work so hard with my craft is that even though I might write black characters, I want them to be accessible sure, sure. to all readers I don't want a reader to feel as if I can, that I can't relate to that because I'm not a black person from South Alabama. Right. But if I can connect with them on the emotion, right. then that means my book can transcend ethnicity. It can transcend the, its southernness. All of those are very important sure. parts of it. But it means my work can go beyond that. It right. can do what some of the the greats that I talked about a few minutes ago have been able to accomplish in their writing. Their yeah. writing has gone beyond the categories that they sometimes get lumped into in the bookstore. Yeah. So we're going to – that'll be the last thing we talk about. But the penultimate is that as an Appalachian, like one of the things that as I write about Appalachia is how do I explain to people what, what, it, what that is like? Mm-hmm. Right? Like Appalachia, it's a palpable thing. But a lot of, I was describing this the other day, some people are in the box and don't know they're in the box. Right. And they just think that the box mm-hmm. is the way that it is. And other people get out. And the box is always there, but we know that the box is bigger. And so my experience with the kinds of thematic things that one imagines happens to people who are black or who are from some who isn't a white dude who gets a lot of passes on stuff, is that um, when I was in California, I was writing about technology. And pretty much on a daily basis, people would say something like, I'm not used to hearing somebody with your accent talk about things like this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, so I could see how when somebody's referred to as well-spoken, that might be something that after a while puts you in a box. 
and how the anger in that box is pretty righteous. And so it's sort of ridiculous to say, I don't understand why you're mad if you're outside the box because you don't understand what that box does. And if you don't understand because you're in the box, you don't know how to express things outside of that. And that is, as I write about Appalachia, it's obviously it's poverty where I'm from. Right. Right. We live in abject poverty with no chance of getting out. Because where my family's from is that's it is uh, four of the ten most poverty places in the country. That's the box. Yeah. But everybody has their boxes. Some people have multiple boxes. Exactly. Um, and that's, I think, what grading writing does is say you can understand Appalachia because somewhere you have a box. Yeah. And I need you to understand. Yeah. That. And then if you understand your own thing, you can empathize. You don't yeah. have to agree with it. You don't yeah. have to say it's the reason. But you can't go, I don't understand. There you go. Exactly. That's, to me, what great writing does. That's so hard. Almost definitely. <laughs> yeah. But when you read it, you know, right? Like when you when you wrote this, were you are you happy with it? Like did it do the thing that you wanted it to do? Yes. On on the on the macro level, yes. Yeah. On on the micro level, of course, yeah. I could pick it to death. <laughs> but did, yes, and then for it to be my first novel, yes, I feel very good. That's why I think too. Maybe I don't feel as um, wounded if I should, you know, get a, a, a bad review because yeah. I know that every bit of me. Uh, the, uh, every bit of my capabilities as a writer at the time that I wrote it, that I gave it all. Yeah. And if 10 years from now, if, if I were tasked to write that same book all over again, I'm sure I could do things different, better. But at the place where I was yeah. when I wrote it, I'm totally satisfied because there's nothing else I could have done to make it any better based on where I was at that time. And I think that's the whole point of being a writer. And I think Toni Morrison maybe even said that about her, her earlier works is that, you know, you can only, you can only judge yourself on where you were when you wrote it at that right. moment. Right. So to critique yourself 10 years from now, after you've written 20 more books, it's almost laughable. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you do, and you're like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. That probably means you're a terrible writer. <laughs> there you, you go. You haven't gone anywhere. There you go. Um, were you able to put it down, like, when you were done? Like, the the abuse, the stuff? When you, Did you work through it? Yeah, to a degree, I mean, yes. as much as you worked yes. through that? Yes. A, a large part, I would say 80% of it. Like, yeah. that's the story in your... The majority of what's in there happened on one level or another. Yeah. Definitely, the emotional stuff is all all true to me. Yeah. Some of the details have been changed. Obviously. But I mean, like, do you feel like when you were done, did you feel like, okay, I've, I've worked through that now? I think I've. I think it was that I've worked through the parts of it that are not still ongoing, yeah, and yeah. that you know, there's still relationships that yeah. I have that. Until whatever happens to end those relationships, right. those wounds are still going to kind of yeah. get, you know, irritated. But the, the, the majority of it, yeah, I feel at peace. So last question, um, and this is uh, my actor studio question because mm-hmm. I ask everybody this. Um, and you made reference to it, which is um, things like women's literature, black literature, and whatever, science, like pe- the labels that people put on things. Right. How do you feel about them? 
Well, I, I call myself a Southern writer yeah. because the South plays such a huge part in what I write. But um, I don't resist the labels maybe quite as much as I did previously, as long as I know that I have the flexibility to change it up if I want to. Yeah. So that right now I'm in the Southern writer mode. But if I should decide a year from now or 10 years from now, that I want to write something completely different. I want to know that I have that ability yeah. to redefine myself and that, that it's okay. I find them weird. Mm. I, 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 I was tell, talking with um, Sarah Layden, um, and uh, what I told her was, I hate them until you're trying to sell a book. Oh, yeah. Right, like, as soon as I'm trying to sell yeah. a book, like, I'm going to be an Appalachian writer. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, that's what I am. But I... But to me, it's literature. Like, what I'm writing is creative nonfiction. Like, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, I, think the, I think the bigger you become, the more you can transcend that, those labels. I think when you are initially starting out as a writer, yeah. it's, it's, sadly, it's almost, it's almost necessary. Yeah. Particularly for, particularly for publishing houses and for agents. They want to know how they're going to be right. able to sell your work. It's a two-word audience. Right. Right. But, you know, you become J.K. Rawlings, and you can call yourself, you know, whatever you want to call yeah. yourself because the people are going to find you. But when you're yeah. just starting out, your work has to find the people. Yeah, I guess, you know, when I look, I think, well, what this? I know where it's going to end up, mm-hmm. right? I know the two places this is going to end up, maybe yeah. three, right? It'll be in the... Black studies, yeah. it'll be in women's literature, and it'll mm-hmm. be in Southern writers. But it'll be back far in Southern writers because that's yeah. going to be Faulkner. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Be at the bottom of that pile. Exactly. And it just it is um, as we as writers as people as we we talk about empathy and trying to explain the boxes to people, having them marketed in boxes seems like the worst thing you can yeah. do, right? Except for the fact that I do want the Southern reader to find my work. I do want the African-American reader to find my work. So if, if that means for now, it has to be in boxes. I can live with that because I'm willing to do the work to make sure that those individuals on the, uh, that, that aren't going to to necessarily look on the, on the shelf mark African-American. I can do the work myself to get it into their hands yeah you know so it's 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 i think it's what we all have to deal with initially no matter even if you are a white male writer they're going to find a way to put you in some type of box you know and if you look on the the shelves you see it's pretty scary where just the fiction resides and, and you've got to somehow weed through that and find yeah. those individual writers it's it's in some ways kind of uh, makes you feel kind of good to know well at least they'll they'll be able to go to that little slim right. shell right. and find me yeah until i become writers there's like nine so there you go a good cover <laughs> there you go but it is it's just one of the it's like an mfa like i'm always interested how people feel about that because i think it says something about you know where people come from like what you know, if you ask writers about MFAs, I don't know if you've ever had that discussion, but surely you've heard it. Yeah. There's some people that just think, absolutely not, and others that swear by the process. I don't think it's the process. I think it's the school. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it, if I, if 
Spalding nurtures the writers, the writers that go through that program in a way that I've not seen or heard of in other schools. I'm yeah. sure they exist in other schools, but you know, even just being the the black person in the room, there were things that were put into place to make sure that my writing was always going to get the attention and was going to get um, the respect that I've heard other writers of color say at other programs that I won't name that they just didn't get that. So I think if you're going to go for the MFA, you've got to know something about what does the administration feel about their students? Is it just numbers or is it just prestige of getting certain people in? Right. But do they really care about you as an individual? And if you can't, if that's not existing in your MFA program, then it's going to be a miserable, miserable experience. In fact, you want to tell everybody about graduate school. Like you need to know who they are, why you fit in and what you want to get out of it. Right. Uh, I mean, I tell students that the potential students, they're always sending them to me because I, I say I drank the Kool-Aid big yeah. time for Spalding. But I say to them, don't take my word for it. Tell them you want to sit in on class. Yeah. Tell them you want to speak to people that graduated. You want to speak to yeah. people in the middle of the program and those that are just starting. Yeah. So, of course, if you talk to the person that loves it, it's going to sound great. Right. But do some digging. Right. You know, so... Um, I, I think any program can work. Uh, the thing that I got out of Spalding more so than learning how to write, because I think I was a good writer yeah. going into it, the the relationships after the fact. Yes. I'm still in contact with the people that I was in school with. My yeah. teachers and mentors still contact me. They were very instrumental in making sure that my book was publicized and pr- promoted those are the questions i would say to people to ask as well what are they going to do for you when you have a book right are they going to help you promote it are they going to make sure that it gets into the right hands and if that that, if that's not going to happen if you see that didn't happen with other students it's probably not going to happen (laughs) with you either yeah no that's exactly i tell people i went to berkeley because it's berkeley and the alumni network is gigantic Mm -hmm. and 14 years later it's still all that money I spent was an investment over 16 years, not a two-year commitment. Right. And I talk to my mentor once a month, and I've done that for 14 years. Exactly. Um, and he – we couldn't be more different. He's African-American. He worked for Jimmy uh, Jimmy Carter in the White House. He's corresponded for the L.A. Times over in the West Bank. Like He's basically done everything in the world. And I have told people, he taught me how to be a man. Like, my father taught me how to be a man in the world, and he taught me how to be a man in the professional world. See? And, like, that's graduate school. And you can't put a price tag on that. I mean, Berkeley did. But thank you for coming. This was great. Thank you. This was so wonderful. And thank I'm looking you for... forward to seeing you at the jam. I am so excited about that. I've been practicing. Have you? <laughs> well, it's going to be great. We have um, three or four people coming down from Chicago, one from um, uh, Illinois. I think Erica Worth is from Illinois. Um, and Trey is coming up from St. Louis. It's going to be loads of fun. And see, I've never done anything like this before. Nobody so, has. So this is exciting. I totally made this up. It's completely made up. I, I like this isn't a thing. Wow. I just decided to do it. Well, that's it's brilliant. I, I'd like to think so. It's my one good idea. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much, too, Brad. Well, there you have it. That was my 
interview with Angela. It was a lot of fun. Very interesting. Started off a lot heavier than I expected. Her book, Drinking from a Bitter Cup, a novel, is out right now. You can go read that. Sounds like a duly depressing read. The best kind. Uh, November 12th, Angela will be at the Writer's Jam. She'll be there with Bill Hillman, Ben Tanzen, Erica T. Worth, Trey Dowell, Lynn Jones. Six authors. We have three other new authors who will kick off the show. 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Indie Reads Books. Make sure you're there. You can find out all the information about all the writers and what's going to be happening at thegigipress.com backslash events. November 1st, Indie Word Lab. Don't forget that. Barb Choup will be reading. Sign up for our newsletter, our semi-regular newsletter of cool shit. Otherwise, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.